Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Neil Simon, the former 2018 independent US Senate candidate and the author of the new book Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. Neil Simon, thank you for joining me. It's great to be with you, Ed. You're a businessman who entered the political arena in 2018 as an independent candidate. Was that experience in politics, was that really the motivation for writing this book? And what do you hope to achieve with this book and the reforms listed in it? The campaign was certainly an inspiration for the book. So I I ran for office for the United States Senate because like so many Americans, I was deeply frustrated with our government, deeply frustrated with a legislature in particular that that I viewed as a red team and a blue team battling against each other every day and getting very, very little done for the American people. And I'm in a family where we have three kids and we bring a different issue to the table every night. And sometimes we talk about immigration, sometimes we talk about healthcare, sometimes we talk about other public policy issues. And it always came down to, hey dad, so why don't they just do this? And after years of that and years of frustration, I decided to dive into the political arena and see if there was a different approach that we could take. And one of the things I discovered when I was running for office was that the incentives that you have as a candidate are to appeal to one of the two ideological bases in the United States. So to either sign up as a Democrat and appeal to that blue base and run as a real left-wing liberal or sign up as a Republican and appeal to the the right-wing base and run as a very conservative Republican. And there's really almost no incentive to do anything other than that, to talk about compromise solutions, to talk about um, the nuances in different issues. You get penalized politically for doing that. And it has to do with how Um, ballot access works, with how debates work, with how our primaries work, with how money works. And when I figured all that out, how broken I thought this incentive system was, I decided to to write a book about it. That issue you talked about of people running to the polls of their party is something that we often hear about people praising these challenges who unseat incumbent politicians. But they don't appear in the center. They're either the progressive Democrats or the Tea Party Republicans, uh, as they were on now, the Trump Republicans. Why does the electoral process favor candidates on the fringe of their parties? Why can't we have a situation where these centrist candidates survive? Because most Americans probably identify themselves as a centrist at heart. They agree with the centrist position. So why aren't candidates winning in that middle ground? So it has to do with how our our whole electoral process works. So imagine you're a pragmatic person who wants to run for office. You're a centrist in your words. 
So the first thing you do is you look at the districts where you might run. And it turns out that 90% of the districts for the U.S. House of Representatives are uncompetitive in the general election, meaning one party or the other has a substantial enough advantage that the general election really doesn't matter. And the only thing that matters is the primary, the dominant party. And for our Senate, it turns out about 70% of Senate seats are the same way. So you'd look at that and you'd say, okay, 90%, 70%, it's really just about the primary for the majority party. So if I wanna be elected, let me go run in that primary. So then you think, well, who runs, who votes in that primary? Who's turning out to vote in those primaries? So what you'll discover is that they're pretty low turnout. So on average, a congressional primary is about 20% of American voters, split about 10% for each of the two parties. And the people who are in that 10% that actually show up to vote in that primary for that party tend to be the most ideological extreme. So you realize you've got to appeal to that base if you want to win the primary. Then you know that in order to compete, you need money because money moves the needle. And I found that in my campaign that that's really is the case because you can spend on ads, you can spend on all the other campaign activities. And it turns out that money also comes from the two extremes. Most money is coming from big money organizations or very wealthy um, individuals who are ideologically extreme and want to influence public policy in that way. So they will use the money to influence the candidates. And you'll find the same type of incentives through other aspects of our electoral system. So I, I personally believe that most people in Washington, in the U.S. Congress, are good people. They're just responding to terrible incentives. And that's why our government is so sadly broken. And that's why you think that having open primaries rather than these closed partisan primaries would be a step in the right direction there, because instead of people having to appeal to that small section of their base, they'd have to be appealing to the electorate as a whole, the sort of electorate that they'd see in the general election rather than one that's a partisan atmosphere. So what we've allowed to happen over the last few decades in this country is we've allowed two political parties to form a duopoly and basically take control of our electoral system. There's nothing in the Constitution that says it's supposed to be like this. There's not one mention of political parties in our Constitution, of um, primaries, or of anything that goes on in those political primary processes. So the way I think this should work is the way that the founders envisioned that it would work. Right? George Washington was a political independent, and the framers of our constitution had really envisioned a government where people represented their districts. They had their jobs, they came to Washington for a few years, represented their constituents, voted their conscience, and then went back home. And instead, what we've got is two semi-private organizations that are running the semifinals for our elections. And it's really not serving us well. So what, what open primaries, would do it mean that in its extreme and best form you'd have one open primary where everyone votes in the same primary and you either move the top two or top four people forward but at the minimum i think the two parties that are running publicly funded elections with taxpayer money paying for those elections i think everybody should be allowed to vote in those primaries so for example i'm an independent 
my three kids have registered to vote as independents, we're left out of what is the most important election in our district because we happen to live in a district that's locked Democrat, but we're, because we're independents, we're not allowed to vote in that primary, even though my taxpayer dollars pay for that. And I, I think that's unfair and the overwhelming majority of Americans agree with me. That issue of this hyper-partisan nature of American politics, where everything is focused on being Democrat or Republican, how did America get to that place when this was exactly what the nation was warned about by the first president, George Washington? He warns that opposing political parties would have a negative impact. He talked about the destructive nature of them. So why did America not listen to this? Because it's not like this is a new concept that opposing political parties is problematic. It was a concept before the Democratic and Republican Party as they are today existed. Isn't it amazing that George Washington in his farewell address 225 years ago warned against three things. One was running up unnecessary debt. The second was fighting unnecessary wars. And the third was that Americans might one day develop more loyalty to factions, what he called political party, than to the country itself. And I think he had tremendous foresight and our country was blessed to, to have him as a leader. Um, what's happened is that this is our democracy. This is our government, and I think Americans sometimes lose sight of it, but it is ours. It belongs to the citizens. And periodically, the citizens need to activate to reform how we do things. That's what happened during the progressive era 100 years ago in the United States, when women for the first time were afforded the right to vote, when Americans could, for the first time, directly elect their senators, when a bunch of anti-corruption laws were passed all at once. There was a wave of reform because people were upset with the dysfunction in government and the corruption in government. I think we're at a similar point in time now where Americans increasingly are disappointed by the fact that we have a polarized government that gets nothing done. And we're starting to see political reforms passed at the state level. So in 2018, we had 23 different reforms passed in various states around the country. Um, in 2020, we thought we'd have about 45, but because of the pandemic, a number of them were not able to get enough signatures to get those initiatives on ballot. So it won't be that many, but we have more. And I think what needs to happen is those reforms, which include things like anti-gerrymandering and campaign finance reforms and opening primaries that you brought up, Ed, and ranked choice voting, which we now have statewide in Maine and is on the ballot in, in Alaska, um, it's reforms like that that are building up at the local and state level, and eventually we start passing some of these things nationally. And that's exactly what happened 100 years ago, and I think it's what's going to happen here in the next five to 10 years. And if we don't do anything, it's not going to get any better, because we're in a natural downward spiral where we're getting more and more polarized and more and more dysfunctional, and it's only if citizens get active and support these types of reforms that we can change how our government is working for us. One of the criticisms your book faced in reviews was that your solutions, quote, rely too heavily on federal legislation or constitutional amendments to fix things. Given the unwillingness we've seen from Congress, do you think there's an argument to be made that going to the local and state level is really where these 
changes are going to come from because Congress on the whole is in a situation as we're seeing now where they can't agree on basic ideas, basic policies that the majority of Americans support purely because they want to run to the polls uh, of their party. They want to be on the wings of their party for when they have to go back into those primaries. So is local and state politics where these changes are going to come from, where we're going to see this difference begin, at the very least? So not only can't Congress agree on the things you mentioned, Ed, I think if one of the parties came out and said the sky is blue, the other party would debate that and come up with another color and they'd be arguing about it, right? They can't agree on anything. Um, because they're penalized politically for agreeing with anything the, the other party is saying. Um, in terms of the reforms in my book, there are 10 of them. Two of them require constitutional amendments and those are admittedly difficult to get passed. One of those is around campaign finances and the other is around term limits. Um, the other eight do not. Now, I think the way that this happens is exactly what you described. It starts at the local and state level, which is what we've seen happen already. We've had a bunch of campaign finance reforms at the state level. We've had um, a number of primaries start opening up at the state level. We have a number of independent redistricting commissions that have been formed to eliminate political gerrymandering of districts. I mean, how ridiculous is it that we allow our politicians to choose their voters rather than the other way around, right? But that's started to be reversed in different states around the country. And we've had other reforms as well at the local and state level. And the way reform waves happen is we need to just keep building on that and keep having successes in different states. And eventually, maybe we'll have the federal legislation that you're talking about. And eventually, maybe we'll even have those two constitutional amendments that I'd like to see happen. Um, but it, it does take time and it takes people getting involved. You're equally tough on both political parties. As you say, you're an independent, ran as an independent, you're registered as an independent. You recognize and, and highlight how, while America is in a two-party system, neither party is attempting to truly engage in this on the scale that it needs to be dealt with. Why do we have the situation? Is it that they're career motivated, so it's not in their interest, they want to be in office? Is it the case that they just think this is a lost cause and so it's an issue that, you know, if it's so difficult to get through, it's not worth wasting the political capital on? What is this motivation for inaction? So I think the biggest reason is what they're thinking about politically. And what I mean by that is, if you're in Congress these days, your number one concern is getting primaried, is losing your primary to a more extreme challenger. In 2018, um, Joe Crowley was the third ranking Democrat in the United States House of Representatives. And he was a pretty effective congressman who'd been there for 12 years. And in his primary, he ran against a 29-year-old woman with no political experience, but who ran an effective grassroots campaign, and she got 16,000 votes, one 6,000, in a low turnout Democratic primary, and that was enough to beat him in his primary, and that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And um, to put that in perspective, I got 86,000 votes in my Senate race, the general election, and unfortunately was not really close to winning. But with only 16,000 votes, she was able to win that primary. And so 
if you're in Congress today, that's what you're worried about. You're worried about being primaried, whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican. There were just, in this last cycle, we had eight existing members, eight current members of Congress lose their primaries, and they were almost all, seven of the eight, to more extreme challengers from the wings of the party. So, so what are you going to do if that's what you're worried about? You're going to keep moving to the ideological extreme. You're never going to be willing to compromise with the other party because you'll be viscerated for that in the primary. And that's our incentive structure. So I think that's a big part of it. And then again, money plays a big role here also because the money you need, compromise is a dirty word to, to the people that are providing you that money. Um, I'll tell you a quick story there also. So when I was running, I'm, I'm from the private sector. I'm a business guy. I've run a few different companies. Um, and my most successful one was in the investment world. And we managed six and a half billion dollars. And I employed 100 people. And, um, but I'm also someone who believes that climate change is real and that we should do something about it. So I believe deeply in the private sector, but I think climate change is real. So I would get questionnaires from PACs that would ask me to check one side of a set of questions or the other. So say I got one questionnaire from an environmental group and another from the US Chamber of Commerce. Well, the reality is I can't go down either one of those columns and check all those boxes because I see some nuance in these issues and I don't agree entirely with one side or the other. So for someone like me, there's no money on that issue. And that's part of the problem with the system. When you look at that issue that exists in primaries of low turnouts and in various other elections, even on the national level, you get low turnout. And certainly at state and local levels, often you get low turnout in races. Is part of the problem us? Is part of the problem the people who are asking for these reforms, saying they want these changes, they want it to happen, but to do that, they need to show up and vote, and they're just not doing that. So politicians continue on with their ways because the system in which that they're running in remains the same. So it's part of the problem. People need to get up, get motivated, vote, even in the most mundane of election on the ballots or in their primary every time around, because otherwise these politicians aren't going to change their ways. It's not in their interest. Part of the problem is definitely us. Now, in fairness to us, the citizens, we're being led by politicians who are dividing us and who are using divisive language, um, rhetoric every day that accuses the other side of being evil and stupid, and they're feeding the division in our society. So imagine you're at a company and you show up every day and half of the company puts on a blue uniform and half the company puts on a red uniform and you've got co-CEOs that are fighting it out every day that's what we're like as a country now. So it's hard to blame all the employees in that company for being a little um, mis, you know, for misbehaving periodically because their leaders are, are modeling that behavior. And then the other thing that the citizens of this country really have going against them right now is our media environment, which is um, bifurcated, has become very polarizing. Um, most of the country is no longer getting their news from real, true, objective sources where we all agree on what's happening around us. And that's that feeds into it as well. So I don't want to let the American citizenry completely off the hook, um, but there are some reasons why the, the, the citizens themselves have been divided. 
looking at some of the reforms that that you talk about if you look at for example when you ran in 2018 your political opponent was a man named uh, senator ben carden who's been in elected office for over 50 years and for the last 13 of those he served in the u.s senate you've proposed in this book a constitutional amendment, it's one of the ones you talked about, that implements term limits. What would that look like? And is that something that is just a pipe dream? Because asking politicians to vote for term limits is like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. It's essentially asking them to inevitably vote themselves out of a job. So all 10 reforms in my book are supported by 60% of Americans or more. Term limits is supported by 83% of Americans and is the most popular one. So the American public overwhelmingly believes we should have term limits. And we have it for our presidency. We have it in 36 states for governors. And we have it in other parts of our, our government. So why don't we have it in Congress? In the early 90s, it turns out that in 23 states in this country, the states themselves passed laws limiting the terms for their representatives to the U.S. Um, Congress. So we had, in the early 90s, 23 states had term limits on their federal representatives. The Supreme Court ruled in 1994 that the, that was unconstitutional. And so we went from having term limits on part of Congress to, to none of Congress. So as a result of that 5-4 Supreme Court ruling, we now need a constitutional amendment to make it happen. So it's clear it's got popular support. You're right that one of the ways you get an amendment through is to get the legislature itself, Congress itself, to pass it. And that's probably what ultimately will have to happen. But the way we, you can make that happen is you put some pressure on them by having a constitutional convention and starting that process. And then eventually enough Americans are behind it and Congress passes it. There's a group called U.S. Term Limits that has been doing a lot of great work on this issue, and they've got a number of states behind it already. I mean, there's a, a lot of work ahead. I think one of the, the, the possibilities here is to combine term limits, which is generally a little more popular among Republicans than Democrats, combine that with campaign finance reform, is generally a little more popular with Democrats and Republicans, and maybe there's a chance for us to do those two things together. The issue of term limits, the concern that does emerge, while it is an incredibly popular proposal, there is a concern that while it will prevent people from sitting in office for decades, getting comfortable, camping there, and just taking advantage of the system. There are those who will be talented, expert individuals who get forced out of office when they could be doing genuine good for the country. Even if it's the case of, for example, they're spending decades fighting to address some of the fundamental issues that need to be dealt with in the US Constitution and in the electoral process. What do you say to people who, while they broadly support this proposal, are, are a bit concerned about you know, losing those representatives that are a force for good? So the first thing I say is, let's look at the data. And over the last 50 years, the average tenure in Congress has doubled. It's, and it's increased almost in a straight line. So if it's doubled, wow, Congress must be so much more efficient and effective because we have all these experienced legislatures. I and mean, we must be doing great, right? 
and they look at me and they kind of get the get the point. Um, and then what I will ask them is, how do they feel about having term limits on the presidency? And everyone in the U.S. I literally haven't met anyone who is against that yet. Well, what about your governor? Um, and nobody's against term limiting governorships either when I talk to them. So then they have to now argue that that experience is important for the legislature, but less important for our executive branch of our government at the federal and state levels. And at that point, pretty much everybody, you start at 83%. I think once you get through those arguments, you're up into the high 90s. And the only people who at that point are not in favor of term limits tend to be the existing legislators that have already been elected and are afraid of being term limited out. But there's also, in all seriousness, there's data that it's effective. It's, um, for example, uh, budgets in state legislatures where you have term limits, the budgeting is more responsible. And there was a study done at the University of Florida to show that. So I don't worry a lot about that loss of experience. I don't think it's gotten us much. In fact, here's what it has gotten us. What the people in Congress have gotten really good at over those 50 years with the, the tenure going up, what have they gotten really good at? Where has that experience and skill really, they've honed it. It's partisan warfare. That's what they've gotten good at. They've gotten good at fighting to win the daily media cycle. They've gotten good at belittling each other. What they have not gotten good at is working together to actually pass legislation that benefits the people of this country. With only 16% of Americans trusting the federal government and only 11% having confidence in Congress, is it now, in a way, too little, too late to restore faith in the system? Or do you think that America can go back to that sort of shining beacon of democracy, can, can bring it back and, and restore that faith in Americans that has been lost by these consistently partisan, political, undemocratic moves? God, I hope it's not too late, don't you? Um, you know, and we've had tough times before. We've had, you know, times where we ended up in civil war. We had times that I described earlier, 100 years ago, where a lot of Americans felt like the government was corrupt and dysfunctional, and they were the impetus behind a number of reforms that changed the way we, we run elections and um, change our whole political system. And I think that's where we are now. I'm an optimist, and I love my country. I believe deeply in our, my country. Right now, we're very divided. We're very dysfunctional. I believe we will eventually get through that. But I also believe that it's not going to happen on its own. It is only going to happen with citizen leadership and with people who are willing to put the country above any political party. When I ran for office, my slogan was people over politics. And I And when I campaigned around Maryland, I spoke to tens of thousands of people. I am telling you, Ed, most people agree with me. And the data bears that out. 42% of America identifies as independents. Only 29% is Democrat and 26% is Republican. So most people identify as independent. When you talk to them, I so rarely found these partisan warriors. Um, but we're allowing that small minority to be overly influential. We're allowing the incentives in our government, particularly with legislative elections, to drive our politicians to the two extremes, to drive them to not work together. And 
there are things we can do about this. And that's what my book, Contract Unite America, is about. You know, what can we do about it? What are the specific actions we need to take? And hopefully citizens will get involved and support them and support the different organizations behind these reforms. And I do think we can get to a better place. I'd like to leave your listeners with a hopeful message, because I am a hopeful person and an optimistic person, and I, and I think we can do something about it. Where can people get a copy of this book? Where can they read more about your work and find out more about what you're up to? So my book's sold basically wherever books are sold. It's in airport bookstores and all over the place. But most people just buy it on Amazon. (laughs) So it's called Contract Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. Neil Simon, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Ed. That was Neil Simon, the former 2018 independent US Senate candidate and the author of the new book, Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic, which is available to purchase now. You can find out more about him and his work on Twitter at Neil J. Simon and his book at contracttounite.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.